Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories? This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. Today's guest is Liza Jane, or LJ. I connected with LJ because of her involvement in Now Australia, but have found out that her capacity to share stories started much earlier. LJ has almost three decades of experience helping organisations, causes and individuals successfully grow their profiles and accentuate their positive. She's worked at the highest levels of media, government and business as a journalist and trusted advisor. It was her close friendship with fellow journalist Tracy Spicer that also set her on a path with Now Australia and outspoken women. After Tracy shared a tweet in October of 2017 and received an overwhelming response in light of the Me Too movement, it was a realization that it was time to add to this conversation. Now has been founded by a diverse group of women with extensive experience across research, education, and advocacy. Their work is focused on making workplaces safe for everyone. LJ shares her personal drive to make the most of her life and how to look at and navigate the inevitability of mistakes. They're gonna happen, we all make them, but how do we prepare for them? One of the things that I loved about this conversation was how real and honest LJ was in sharing her experience of the imposter syndrome, something that she feels at time and has prompted her to have a year of just saying yes. She also encourages people to just find something that starts a spark in you, whatever that is, and that spark will start to flow on to other aspects of your life. It's my hope that this conversation will spark something in you. So sit back and soak up the down-to-earth nature that is Liza Jane Locke. LJ, great to have you in the studio. It's fantastic to be here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's, uh, there's... I'm so excited about this conversation because there is so much that I want to dive into. You, Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, I know. Be careful. Strap yourself in. You've done so many things, and from what I've read, you've done. You've spent three decades working with individuals, teams, and uh, organisations, and a lot of what ties your work together, from what I can see, and uh, be interested to get your take, is really you standing um, for and beside people. Where has that come from for you? You know, I I was thinking about that and perhaps where it comes from is as a kid, we moved around a lot. So I'd been to something like 15 schools by the time I was 13. So I was always a new kid. And uh, one of the things that helped me fit in was connecting with people through storytelling and not so much telling my story, but helping them tell their story. I suspect that's the root of it, to be honest. Having to fit in really, really quickly, 13 yeah, there was a lot of schools, lot. and um, we, we. I grew up on Bougainville Island, which is um, part of the um, the Solomon Islands, and um, on the outskirts of PNG. And moved back to Brisbane to start high school, and uh, at a Catholic school, Holy Family in Indrapilly, and they'd all been together since primary. You know, they'd all been together since kindy, and I turned up in my best clothes from Bougainville, which were my um, my denim pinafore and my Holly Hobby socks and matching t-shirt, and I was a long way from the high fashions of Indrapilly. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to slot <laughs> in very quickly. Definitely an outsider. <laughs> definitely an outsider. There. Yeah, whether it's the trend that's coming or the one that's yeah, not. Yeah, <laughs> I think perhaps only on Bougainville Island. <laughs> yeah. What was the drive behind the move around? What was your uh, my dad worked there? in the Merchant Navy, so. 
so um, we moved around depending on where he where he could get work. So got to see some amazing places, and it did teach me some amazing skills of of resilience and and also. Uh, learning to be okay in my own company because you can try really hard as a kid to fit in, but there are some times you're just not going to. And so I did spend a lot of time in the library with books and I developed a a love of learning and a love of um, embracing the possibility of what might be in the future as opposed to getting caught up on the boredom of today. So you went to um, high school in Brisbane Mm -hmm. and I understand you then went on to university in Brisbane. What was the... How, how did you know what kind of career you wanted to go down well, the path I actually on? wanted, I really wanted to be an aeronautical engineer because I was desperate to get into space. And um, I, I got the mark that was high enough to do that and then just had a look and went, you know what, it's actually not really what I want to do. Um, I'm good at talking and... Uh, let's give journalism a go. And so I I went to QIT as it was then, did the Bachelor of Business Communications. There weren't many of us doing journalism and and just about all of us who graduated from journalism did end up pursuing a successful career in journalism. So it was was a great start to what's been a very varied career. Did anything surprise you going into that study or into that area? Because often you can have a bit of an idea when you're at high school about what you think it's going to be and then when you actually dive into the study it can be a little bit different. I was just so delighted at the fact that I was being rewarded for doing what I like doing the most which is talking to people helping them share their stories and just using my voice and using words um, to affect change. What happened out of out of university? Where did you get a job in journalism? Uh, so I started. I, I was very lucky. I got a job in commercial radio pretty quickly, starting as a sports journalist, and uh, then was lucky enough to move into politics at a really exciting time in, in Queensland politics. We, Bjorki Peterson was still the premier. We went through a revolving door of premiers, and then the Fitzgerald inquiry. And I got to report on all of those, despite the fact I was incredibly young. And because I was lucky enough to fall into all of those opportunities, when Labor won power in December 2, 1989, Wayne Goss asked me whether I'd come and work with him. And so I was lucky enough to be part of the very first Goss government um, staff. And, you know, that really opened my eyes to how um, laws are made and legislation is made and communities are shaped and and the possibility to actually change that. And not, not many members of the public have the confidence, the courage or the belief that they can change things by going and talking to their local MPs, but you can. There's a lot of unknown. As much as we know about politics, we understand our people, we understand um, their their policies or what they stand for or what they stand against. But I think there is a lot of unknown around how the decisions are made, who influences those decisions, where do they come from and the power of us being able to have a voice mm. in that. That must have been really fascinating at such a young age. Well, particularly coming from journalism um, where you have this ingrained belief as a journalist that you're this torch carrier of the truth, that you're bringing the truth to light. And it was a little bit of a maturation for me becoming a political staffer because you could actually see how much easier it often was to change outcomes by not necessarily going through the media, that that often direct lobbying, direct engagement with MPs, with the department, would have more impact than than actually putting out a media release and making a splash in the media. And that's where my love of strategic communications really started to develop. It was looking at issues, looking at community concerns, looking at um, 
community desires and, and watching the way that cycle played out through the political and departmental decision making and working out where you can actually push the levers to make a difference. Obviously, that passion is carried through into the kind of work that you're you're doing now. Is there other drivers for you? Has there been a couple of other stories around what continues to drive you in sharing stories and and pushing for change? I've always been a believer in the fact that we all have a responsibility. If you don't like something, do something about it. And too many people seem to go, well, what can I do? You know, I'm too small. I don't have the connections. I don't have the networks. I don't have the time. Something that really crystallised it for me was I was doing some work with Lions International and one of their keynote speakers was this amazing woman by the name of Dr Wangari Matai who actually won a Nobel Prize. And uh, she was the first woman in Kenya to get a PhD and she told this amazing story that really resonated. It was about the forest being on fire and all the animals standing at the side of the forest and their homes are being destroyed and they're distraught and they all throw their arms or their paws up into the air going, oh, my goodness, this is a disaster. What are we going to do? The only animal that does anything is the hummingbird and she goes back and forth from the lake trying to put out the fire, emptying her beak as she goes. The other animals notice her and they start laughing and they laugh at her because she's too small and they say, you're too small to make a difference. What can you do? And the hummingbird empties her beak and she says, I'm doing the best I can. I'm being the best I can. I'm making the difference. I can. And if we're all doing that, we actually make the world a much better place. And it's not hard. You can do little things, you know. Um, I've been very heavily involved in our local PCYC in Balmain for close to 20 years. I've just stepped back because of other commitments. But, you know, just being part of something that's happening in your own community, it reinforces your connection. You you get far more out of it anyway. Um, You're actually helping to make your community a better place. And you're making a difference. So many people want to, but it is that common thing and it's almost that analogy, which is such a beautiful story um, of the the other animals going, yeah, but it, is it really actually making a difference? And I think that's what stops a lot of people, um, myself included at times, to go, but it feels so small. It just feels like a couple of drops on a massive fire. <laughs> but imagine if we're all those couple of drops on a massive fire and we're all doing that. I mean, that's what we're seeing with now Australia at the moment and the Time's Up movement. Um, there are all of these individuals and not just women, um, people of colour and, and people from called backgrounds and all of those people who have been others all of their lives are coming forward and going, enough's enough, it's time for change. Let's do this together. And that's what we're starting to see is this spread of let's do it together. Let's all come forward. Let's all step forward and do our little bit. It's not about us all changing the world. It's about us changing the world together. That it's not on one person. It's either. not one person. <laughs> we, That's we right. That's right. And, and there's such um, there's such strength and there's such joy and there's such solidarity in, in being involved in something, in being involved in change and, and changing it. Now, I understand there's also another personal kind of aha moment that you had a a couple of years ago, something that puts you into a hospital bed and probably got you to re-look at life and the way that you were living it. What was the lessons or the realisations that you had? Yeah, so I'd I'd actually seen two doctors eight times over a three-month period and they told me I had bronchitis. So I was soldiering on. I was taking my codril tablets and my steroids and I woke up one morning and and my beautiful little Bichon Pernod wouldn't let me go to sleep and um, realised that I was, you know, having trouble breathing. I thought I was having an asthma attack. So took myself off to RPA, got there, thinking that they'd just give me whatever, some Ventolin and I'd be fine. And... Um, I remember waking up and I was in the bed with machines going beep and 
doctors ask me what my name was and what day it was. And I'm like, I don't have time for this. I've got a really busy day. Come on, let's get on with the Ventolin. And it turned out I actually had severe post-viral cardiomyopathy, which they'd missed and and which in fact had um, been made worse by the prednisone that they'd put me on. So I ended up, um, it was touch and go. I was in intensive care for 10 days. I was in critical care for six weeks and then was told that the chances of me surviving without a heart transplant were pretty remote. So 2012 and 2013 were pretty grim. Uh, But Um, I had a fantastic specialist who kept reminding me that my path was my path, that I was to stay off Google. I wasn't to Google what my odds were. I wasn't to listen to the odds because they give you odds whenever they're, you know, your odds of survival, the odds of this Mm -hmm. happening, and that can be pretty daunting. So I actually came to a uh, compact with them, which they'd only give me the odds at the end of why they were recommending that I have particular procedures. But what it did for me was it made me realise that time is limited, And I want to spend my time with good people who are doing good things. And I want to make the most of every day because I don't know how much longer my heart's going to keep ticking away. Uh, It's got a little bit of built-in support now. I've got a built-in defibrillator and pacemaker called Althea, which is old English for strong, and she keeps me going. Althea, I love it. I know, I know. She's with you every journey. She is with me every day. She beeps every now and again if something's going wrong, and it often takes me a while to work out that it's not the fridge door or the microwave. (laughs) (laughs) It's internal. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, you know, uh, that was such a powerful lesson for me, which is don't put up with toxicity. Don't waste your time because your time's short. Um, live life because life's to be lived. Massive mindset um, journey and experience that you kind of went through and it sounds like you had an incredible uh, health practitioner to kind of help you along that, that journey as well. He was well. amazing and it's so important when you're that sick to actually have someone who's a patient advocate, if you like, for you because you get such conflicting advice from so many different specialists and to just have someone go, you know what, if I were you, here's what I'd do. I'm just going to do a side tack here because I did interview um, on the podcast a couple of episodes ago, Dr. Nikki Sharp, who is a heart and lung surgeon over in WA doing amazing work. Um, But part of that conversation, and she talked about just um, heart disease in women in particular, and it often is misdiagnosed and it often doesn't look and feel like what we think a heart attack might look and feel like. Um, I think her statement was women are more likely to call their mums than a doctor when they're experiencing yeah, some kind of heart Well, a, b- a big part of my post-viral cardiomyopathy being missed was the fact that the two doctors who were both experienced doctors, because we had no family history of heart disease, uh, because I was a woman under the age of 50 and I was relatively fit, they didn't even bother looking at heart. And I had all of the classic symptoms of heart failure. Um, so, yeah, it is important. Women, make sure you're on top of your heart health. Yes, be asking those questions and then don't Google from there. <laughs> don't Google. Google don't doctor Google is, a, is an evil, an evil tool. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to talk about your your work with Now Australia and so understand and, and a lot of the listeners will understand, um, have heard about the Me Too movement, uh, Time's Up movement coming out of Hollywood and, and possibly have even followed some of the work of Tracy Spicer, um, the journalist here in Australia who's, who's a big part and works alongside you with Now Australia and that part of this movement came after a tweet that Tracy put out in October last year, 2017. 
What does Now Australia do? What's part of, you know, what does it do? What impact does it make? How can people understand what this movement is about? So Now Australia is still very, very new. Um, we only set up in um, the very end of March and so we're, st- we're still in the process. We're all volunteers. We've got a, um, a volunteer board of nine and a, a volunteer steering committee of, of 30 and um, this army of volunteers beyond that who are super keen to be involved. So now Australia was set up primarily to create a triage service, if you like, because what we were finding, Tracy's now had more than 1,600 people contact her, men and women, um, to is share their just, stories. Is that out of, blown out of the water of what she might have expected? Absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, and, and those calls fall into three different areas. Um, so part of our focus for now, Australia, is setting up a triage service, if you like, to help people who are looking for counselling support and people who are looking for legal support around sexual harassment in the workplace to help them find that support in the quickest possible way. And then there's a third prong, which is people who just want to share their stories. They either want to share their stories because they've never told them and they want to be heard, um, or they want to share their stories in the hope that they might help somebody else. And so... Um, we've just appointed our interim executive director, a wonderful woman by the name of Christina Sawicka, who's been very heavily involved in setting up our watch here in Australia, but but also um, has done a lot of work in the UK. And we're putting in place the structures um, that you need with an organisation that is going to be here for the long haul. We're very thrilled with the fact that we have bipartisan support. This is about creating safe workplaces for every Australian now and in the future. And uh, it's pretty hard to be against that, regardless of what side of politics you're on. And so we'll continue to work very hard to make sure that we have support right across the political spectrum because we need that. You know, this is important for every Australian and this is important for Australia as a community. Particularly in our workplaces. So what are the conversations we need to be having more of in workplaces? so a lot of these conversations are already starting to happen organically off the back of the the Times Up and the Me Too movement. But the challenge is even where there are workplaces where there are sexual harassment policies and sexual harassment committees in place, there is still, and I've got to say, a legitimate concern that HR is actually there to service the employer and not necessarily look after an employee that has experienced this. And what we have seen, and we've even seen that very, very recently with some very high profile figures within the media environment, people who speak up are sidelined, they're sacked or they're shamed. And so there's a very legitimate concern for people who have been subjected to um, not just sexual harassment, but sexual assault to criminal behaviour in the workplace, there is still a concern for them in, in speaking up. And legitimately, you know, if, if their job is important to them, if they're concerned about being able to transition into another job, of course you're going to be very cautious about what you do. So we're looking at how we can actually work with organisations, how we can work with government, um, how we can work with the many existing wonderful organisations that are in place to bright, provide counselling and legal support and education as to how we can work with them to actually change the culture. There might be some people listening who, you know, when you talk about those those three categories that people contact now Australia who might fall into that category of really wanting to share their story or not sure whether they should share their story, does it even um, matter anymore? It can feel like it was, you know, quite a while ago, um, not something I want to bring any legal ramifications around. 
how how might someone navigate, I guess, that decision-making for themselves? It's not easy and it comes back uh, in many ways to what's right for you. Um, I mean, we are looking at setting up a... Um, uh, a national phone line for people to be able to call in so that we can triage. We're still in the process of doing that. But I can say that many of the people, including myself, you know, who've had experienced sexual assault in the workplace, by actually talking about it, by actually giving voice to what has happened, it's a way of, of letting go and moving on. And for me, it actually made me stronger talking about my experience in the workplace. I guess on the flip side, what have how have you seen it done well when um, some of these topics come up and they're not met well, when um, whether it's HR or an organisation or the actual perpetrator um, might be saying it's not a problem, it's not an issue. Why are you bringing this up? There, there are plenty of examples and high profile examples of of people making accusations and not being believed. Uh, and, and so that's why one of the things we're looking at is, is how do we actually build an independent channel that is separate to HR, for example, as one way of people being able to come forward and say, I'm concerned about going through the official HR channels, but I have had this experience or I've seen this happen um, and I want an anonymised interaction with my employer in terms of, of dealing with that. So that's one of the, the many um, paths we're trying to negotiate at the moment is, is how do we best move forward as a community? And it takes all of us as, as a community to change this. You know, we're all in workplaces if we're lucky. We all know somebody, we're related to somebody who's who's working and we all deserve to be in a workplace where we're treated decently, where we're treated equitably, where we're treated with the respect. Um, it's not that big an ask. And it's critical for all of us. And, and we were even saying this um, before we started the interview. I know you were saying it's really around how do we all get treated equally, uh, that there's an equal layer of power and that that can be the thing that we need to be really mindful of in, in that question. Is there an equality of power? And wherever there's an equality of power, you tend to find that there's sexual harassment or sexual assault of, of some, some shape. Hmm. I guess, yeah, and tapping into that, you know, there might be the trauma from the incident, but then that there's a very real kind of re-traumatisation if I go through this process. What does that look like? So having a, an independent body or an anonymous kind of place to at least be able to talk it through, um, bounce it off, certainly for anyone listening. Yeah, we'll put all the links into um, into the show notes around. Yeah, and I, I just into. really want to stress, um, so we're not talking about at Now Australia duplicating the many amazing counselling and legal support services that are out there. It's more um, many of the people that have come to us have been concerned that they're actually displacing somebody who's more in need um, or they're not quite sure if what they've experienced legitimately deserves that support. So it's more just, um, um, I almost see it as being like a bit of a glue between the gaps, you know, spreading that connectivity so that it's as easy as possible for people to access the incredible resources that are already out there. Sometimes when you dive into this conversation, it can feel like men against women um, or it's us against them. And uh, I guess I'm always, on a very personal note, I'm very, very cautious of anything that starts to look like it's male bashing or, or the flip side, um, for example. Again, how do we how do we navigate or even call out some of those conversations? There's, it's very easy for uh, the people that don't want to see change happen to pigeonhole this as being anti-male. 
And we've been very, very, very careful from the very beginning to say, this is actually about women, but it's about men. It's about women of colour. It's about people of colour. It's about people from a called background. Uh, It's about everyone who has been an other in their life. This is about creating workplaces that are safe and healthy and decent and respectful for every Australian, regardless of your background, of who you are, of your gender, of your non-gender. You know, it's it's a basic human right and it's about time that we had that for every Australian. There are plenty of workplaces and individuals and um I'm going to say men in leadership roles because we know the statistics. So majority of men in senior senior level um, positions and, and that needs to and will change over time um, who want to do good, who actually hear, are hearing some of these messages and it's almost a bit of a call out to kind of go, well, are we doing the right thing? I'm not really sure. I want to know and I think I'm providing an equal space or a safe environment in my workplace Um but I don't know what to do. Um, or I've got a sense that maybe this is a place people don't feel comfortable to speak up. Where do I even start? What advice would you give to them? I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge question and it's a huge question that we as a community need to work together on, on changing. There have been some amazing men who have been involved in setting up now who are involved in helping us um, work through now and right across the political spectrum and, and the interest spectrum. Uh being a, a feminist is is not about being anti-male. It's it's as I said, it's about um, just acknowledging the fact that equality is is actually a fairly fundamental right, and being aware of the fact that the problem exists is one thing. But you know, women have been fighting for a single spot at the table for centuries and centuries and centuries, and and what that does is embed in us this sense of battle. You know, we're often in conflict with another woman trying to get that spot on the table. So it's it's about transitioning from that scarcity into the abundance model. And we're saying, well, let's build our own tables, you know. Let's play outside those rules and let's make sure that we're celebrating everyone's success. And for men and for women, it's about saying, well, is this room, is this workplace, is this panel at conference representative of the wider diversity that exists within the community? Are people with access issues represented? Are people of colour represented? Are people of um, gender, you know, represented across the full spectrum? And it's only when we start challenging ourselves as individuals to make sure the diversity of our community is reflected in the diversity of the spaces that we're in and asking questions as to why that diversity isn't obvious that will start to see change. For me, I think it starts with that curiosity mm-hmm. as well. It's that question and and being willing to go, yeah, is is this? And if not, what can we do about it? Who else? And sometimes it's not not too far a turn of the dial to be able to hear those voices or have them on a stage. And and it you know it, just asking the question, as you say, is a good start. Well, why don't you have more women of colour? Why don't you have um, more people with access issues involved? Um, you know, it's not that hard. There are plenty of them out there. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely invite them into the kind mm. of conversation. On a personal level, what has surprised you about being involved in in Now Australia? Oh, for me, it's it's been, um, I mean, I was a bit daunted when Tracy asked me to become the chair because I wasn't sure that I was up to the task. And How did that come about? 
Why did Trace ask me to be the chair? Um, Trace and I were actually at uni together. We go back a very, very long way. Uh, We've been friends for a very long time and um, I had been, you know, supporting her through the process of the deluge of of calls that she got um, off the back of her Me Too tweet. And we'd also been involved, Tracy... um, is one of the national patrons of Women in Media, which is a voluntary group um, that started through the Media Entertainment and Arts Alliance to bring about gender equality in all facets of the media network. And I had just become the New South Wales convener of that because that's also something I've experienced where, you know, equality is is missing um, right across the, the media platform. And we all tend to suffer from imposter syndrome. You know, we all tend to say, someone's got to find me out soon. I'm not really good enough to do this. And I had my little hummingbird on my shoulder going, just do it. You know what? Just grab this opportunity. What could possibly go wrong? If it goes wrong, we'll deal with it. And I'm so incredibly grateful for the fact that I stepped up to the plate because I have had already so much out of, um, I, I just get such inspiration out of the people that I meet, the people that I talk to, the amazing siblinghood and sisterhood that I work with. Um, there are so many incredible people out there doing incredible things and not necessarily drawing attention to what they're doing. And so being able to meet them from all walks of life, from rural and regional Australia and, um, you know, um, it's, just, it's just phenomenal. I love that term, siblinghood. Siblinghood, yeah, it's 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 really important because... Um, as, as much as, uh, I mean, we started now Australia with a focus on media and entertainment because that's where uh, we had our networks. But we we're always very clear from the beginning about the importance of um, shining the light out into the lowest paid sectors where the sexual harassment and sexual assault is absolutely at its worst because the bigger the inequity of power, the greater the potential for abuse and the reality of abuse. And um, so it was, it's always been very, very important for us to say, how do we widen this? Who are the other people that actually need to be centre of this process? And there are plenty of others that need that, you know, um, people of transgender, uh, people of colour, people of core backgrounds, people with access issues, and, and that's an important focus for us. Did that focus start from the very beginning? Because I can imagine you can go down that path of women um, and sisterhood and then start to see some of these other areas. So did it start with that really inclusive intent? We, we started out involve? determined to be inclusive and then um, as our profile has grown, um, people have recommended other um, champions of communities who've come forward and, and become involved as well. So our steering committee is incredibly diverse, um, both in terms of representation but also in terms of sectors and locations and backgrounds and and. We need that broad spectrum of expertise and of contacts to actually achieve lasting change. And so, um, you know, that will be an ongoing focus for us. And obviously that's going to be a big part of your drive in, in moving this this forward. What's what's excites you about what's next? We're, we're on the crest of a wave. We've got this global tsunami of intent that is happening and the Time's Up movement has traction right around the world. And there's something that feels a little bit different this time around. The backlash will still come. The backlash is inevitable and people are out there waiting for us to make mistakes. And we'll make mistakes, we're human, um, but we'll learn from those mistakes and, you know, the failing is not learning from those mistakes and repeating them. But there is something very different and talking to 
people who are in positions of influence, talking to people who are coming up as emerging leaders, talking to kids about why this change is is required. There's this commonality of it's time, you know, now's the time for change. And we're going to make sure that that change happens. We touched on before we jumped onto Mike and you just brought it up then around, you know, making mistakes. You almost have made it a fait accompli. At some point we're going to. Absolutely. <laughs> we're human. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. And there are, there might be plenty of people listening going, there's something bold that they want to do. And it might be in, in this space, but it might be something, you know, completely different, but it feels bold. It feels new. And often it can be that fear of, but I might make a mistake. I might not get this right. I need to get it perfect. I need to dot every I and cross every T before I even start. I need to have the perfect plan before we get into action. It's almost like the hummingbird has to sit down and actually <laughs> think about it rather than yeah. starting, starting to do it. And often it can be that fear of, of making a mistake. Um, how do you navigate that or how have you navigated that in, in your own personal kind of life? Well, it's not just personal, it's also professional. So, uh, a big part excuse me, of what I do with my business, Alpha, uh, which makes me an official Alpha female. Oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, Alpha, Alpha Consult. Uh, so a big part of what we do both professionally and personally is we actually look at everything that might go wrong. And by articulating that possibility, it actually takes away some of the fear because by already recognising the potential shape of what that fear might come at you as, you've already started to prepare yourself for that happening. And so that then allows me to transition to the, well, what's the worst that could possibly happen? You know, let's give it a go. And and one of the things that I committed to this year was that I will say yes to everything. I'm going to say yes to every opportunity that comes my way and see where it takes me. And Gee, it's taken me on some interesting journeys. <laughs> what, is there one that you can share by way of example, so um, one that comes to mind? Yeah, well, I, I've just been um, appointed as a director to an amazing um, organisation called The Funding Network. And what The Funding Network does is um, it's almost crowdsourcing for very small startups. And they came to me and I had a look at all of the other people on the board and I thought there is already so much talent and expertise there. What am I going to bring to the board? And then I thought, you know what? I promised myself that I'd say yes to every opportunity. And I do bring something to that board. I, I bring my love of storytelling. I bring my love of profiling. I bring my love of government and, and working through the government process. That's an opportunity I would have denied myself if I hadn't had that little mantra of say yes to everything. Um, I've, I've also said yes to dry July. So we'll see how that goes. So have I. Yeah. So have I actually. What are yeah, we first time ever. So we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. I'm really, I mean, that's an experiment I'm really interested in yeah. as well. But I love that idea of actually setting yourself a, a goal, whether it's for a year, for a month, for a week. What is it that I'm going to say yes to? Um, yeah, what what maybe am I shying away and and even you putting words to that, who am I and that imposter syndrome, all of us have it. And and saying yes to everything negates the imposter syndrome because you don't have an out anymore. <laughs> You've got to go with it. I have to do it. I have to figure it out. On the flip side of that, and this might be 2019 for you if this is your year of saying yes, but sometimes we can get overwhelmed and overloaded because we can be pulled in a million different directions. Um how how do you navigate that sense of busyness with a lot on your plate uh, in terms of, I guess, your own energy management and what and how do you say no to things? 
For me, it's about prioritisation. So even if I'm saying yes to everything, I will say, yes, I can do that, but I can't do that for you until. Um, so I have a lot of lists. I, I find making lists gives me a great sense of calm and, and maybe in many ways that's also managing my fears about not being in control because if I've got everything down as a list and I've put my priority A, priority B, priority C next to it, I can actually see how my not just my day but my week and my month is going to plan out. Another big part of it is surrounding yourself with people who support you but people who will also challenge you and people who will make you laugh and smile. And and I'm blessed to have such an amazing friendship with, with Tracy Spicer. I mean, we've been through loss of parents, we've been through marriage breakups, we've been through new marriages, um, we've been through, you know, kids. And having good friends around you who also go, are you sure? You know, do you need to go for a walk? Let's go for lunch. Um, just ringing to check in on you. Um, even just sending a silly, you know, we sing songs at each other. Um, we've also, um, Tracy and I have a, a, a business called Outspoken Women, which we set up with a, a, another friend, Louise Pascali, because we were seeing when we went into organisations that women who are starting out in their careers and people who are mid-career level were crippled by the imposter syndrome. So Outspoken Women is a way of creating an army of outspoken women around Australia. And the three of us We'll often just pick up the phone and sing really bad 80s hits at each other. <laughs> you know, it's amazing oh, what a little it. bit of aha take on me will do <laughs> over the phone, particularly if it's sung badly. Yeah. You don't need anything more than that. It's just the knowledge that somebody else is looking out for you. And I try and do that for my friends as often as I can as well. It's really, really powerful. And it's that person that kind of goes, hey, wall back. Or it can be that person who's a reminder of go, this is your year of yes. Maybe you should give this a go. <laughs> yeah. And, and even the, um, hey, I'm really proud of you you know, giving compliments about things that have been done well. As women, we need to hear that. And uh, because the more we hear that, the more likely we are to recognise that we have done well. And for me, that ties back into something you you touched on really, really briefly before, but there can be this competitive kind of nature. Um, And you know, again, we were even saying off mic that some of that comes from centuries and centuries ago. It's not even in our own lifetime um, of being women being pitted against each other or there's almost this competitive nature that we're not even sure why, but it's it's there. How do we combat some of that? Um, how do we combat some of that? It's already starting to change. When I look at the next generations that are coming through, their expectations of abundance of opportunity are so very different from my generation's expectations of abundance of opportunity. Um, uh, There's, you know, for far too long we've been forced to follow the path of Little Red Riding Hood and I get this sense now that we're actually now, we're more than happy to be off the path, we're more than happy to be the wolves that are out there um, that are actually charting our own path and that's changing not just in the young women but also the young men of the generations that are coming through. Just this expectation that, well, why wouldn't everyone be treated equally? What are your hopes if you were to um, chat with, I guess, some new graduates that are coming through university or coming through their schooling, they're starting their career, um, and mostly young young women, what what are your your hopes and desires for them in terms of what kind of workplace they're walking into? So for young women and for young men, um, because sexual harassment in the workplace is also an issue for young men, um, particularly, you know, um, the others, the young others that are coming through, 
the expectation is, and, and the reason we're doing what we're doing is because it is a fundamental right that any workplace that they work into, that they are given the same opportunities as everyone else, that they are treated with respect, that they are able to thrive in a workplace that brings out the best in them. And to share their voice along the way. And to share their voice and to share their stories. Uh, You know, um, in many ways, social media has also helped with the generations that are coming through in terms of sharing their voice. They're used to speaking up, they're used to speaking out. But there is still, you know, what we need now is systemic change around making sure that the inequality of power in every workplace across Australia is stamped out, that there are actually education and avenues and systems in place so that problems don't become problems, but that where there are problems, there are avenues of address and that people are able to pursue those avenues of address without being victimised and without being punished. There are people listening who um, almost might get inspired from this conversation and kind of be going, how do I be a part of that? How do I become that that hummingbird um, kind of picture? And obviously that's going to be different based on where, where people are. Is there places they can go to, people they can talk to or um, avenues that you might direct them to? Ooh, um, maybe the better way to start is, is to think about what makes you happy. And it might be that it's music or it might be kids or it might be um, reading. Uh, and, and then have a look um, on the you know, have a look online and see what's around in your local community. There are plenty of amazing, you know, literacy and numeracy are huge issues in our community. And I've got a number of friends who are doing amazing work uh, through a range of reading programs, both here in Australia and and across the globe. Working with pets, working with animals, you know, um, cooking and working with refugees. I mean, um, the the way this country treats people who are legally seeking asylum is horrendous. And, and I've done a lot of work with medical professionals. Uh, we've had national rallies around that. And, and just getting out and just finding that little spark because it needs to be something that is genuine to who you are. And by fanning that spark, you fan the fires within yourself. And gee, it makes life a better place when you've got those fires fanned. Absolutely. Not only for you, but the people following behind other people around you. And certainly whenever I see that, for me, it feels like you give permission for the people around you to to do the same. Uh, But that's a really beautiful answer to actually kind of start with with what lights you up, what are you interested in? Um, And don't feel like you have to follow a particular cause just because that might be someone else's. Yeah, it might be something really simple. Like, um, you know, it, it might be baking something for the local school fair or it might be, you know, there might be a women's refuge or, a, you know, who knows what it could be. It might be gardening. You know, there are so many opportunities out there. And if you can't find something, start your own. It doesn't have to be big. Start small and, and reach out to the people around you to support you. And social media, you know, does provide an amplifier to actually get out there and share it. Now more than ever, we've all got a voice. Like the platform feels like it's, it is even in terms of that, the internet landscape and the way you mm-hmm. can create a bit of a, a following and a message. Absolutely. You and you don't, and it's also important to remember that you can do good without having other people know that you're doing good. That's also important. You know, you, you can make an improvement in your community or for others around you. You don't necessarily have to trumpet it. You know, you can do it because it's the right thing. It's where your heart follows or, or where you want to go. 
So probably halfway through your year of yes, and there's probably plenty of other adventures um, ahead. What do you, is there anything on the horizon that um, are you excited about or that you you think you might be saying yes to in the near future? Yes. Yes, there is. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm very lucky. I've just come back from the United States where I had um, the opportunity to meet up with um, the Time's Up executive team and and we're looking at doing some very exciting things together as part of the global uh, Time's Up campaign. So that's super exciting. I'm very excited about that. Um, What else have I got going on? Um, I'm trying to make more time for myself to do more um, Pilates and bar. Uh, but it's it's a little bit hard fitting everything in. But and and one of the other things I'm going to say yes to is actually making sure that I have a massage once a month. Oh, it's so critical, it and is. it's almost I think they're the stuff that we need to put in mm-hmm. um, to the schedule. And because it feels like I'll do that eight, when I've got time, but also um, not almost when I deserve it. But you know, once everything else is done. And it's never all done. No, and scheduling that time, um, as you say, is critical. And and that's one thing that has become very obvious to me over the past 12 months is it's so easy to get caught up in the enthusiasm and passion and potential of everything. But if you're not looking after yourself, you burn out pretty quickly. And so scheduling time to take walks, to do exercise, to cook, um, to hang out with the dog, um, to hang out with your partner, all of those things, to listen to beautiful music. You know, I, I find myself listening to music on a, a really regular basis because that calms my heart. And I can actually tell with my, you know, with my heartbeat um, when I get stressed and, and when I'm not. And listening to beautiful classical music calms that. So I schedule that. I actually have time in my diary for all of those things and I'm going to be much better at making sure I keep those appointments from now on. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. They need to be scheduled like anything else and put them into place. It's been such a delight to chat with you. I want to come full circle. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When I offer that term to you, what what does it mean to you to live a standout life? So a standout life to me is about living the best possibility of the life that you're given. Because at the end of the day, the only person that can judge you is you. And if you're asking yourself, have I made the most of this opportunity for this minute, for this hour, for this day, for this week, for this year, and you can answer yes more often than you answer no, then when you find yourself sick in bed facing your mortality, You've got all those amazing memories and you know that you didn't waste a moment. That for me is a standout life. I'm ready to go book a massage and not waste a moment. Thank you so much, LJ. Thank you, Ali. It was wonderful. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.